0: Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical
1: costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin. Adi Depot the journalist and broadcaster, and Sarah Shepard of The Athletic. Whose game is it anyway? Does football belong to American billionaires and venture capitalists who seek profit without responsibility? Does it belong to a small clique of self-serving clubs? Or does it belong to you and me? Does it belong to our towns and communities? Now, we have no option but to trust the custodians of our clubs, the best ones, and to be honest there aren't many, understand the power of dreams. They want to give back within reason. Do I trust those behind the so-called Project Big Picture? No, in a word. It's a power grab, cynically presented as charity. Now what about you, Addy and Sarah, if you owned a football league club, for instance, would you accept this deal? Is it a good thing? Addy, you go first.
3: I guess we've got to look at this a bit more than just on top of the surface here. I think this seems to be a power grab by two of the biggest clubs in world football. I think what they're doing right now is almost trying to appease the EFL by saying, "Okay, look, here's 250 million to get you out of the struggles you're in right now. And obviously the EFL are going to accept that, as Mike Parry the chairman of the EFL has almost already explained that you know they're happy oh, to get this money. Or oh, Rick, oh, Rick Perry. Sorry, yeah. apologies, or oh, Rick Perry <laughs> has explained that they're happy to get this money. 12%, 25% of all revenues to the EFL clubs, again, it's just ticking boxes. But what it is, is a power grab by two of the biggest clubs that want to be almost compared to Barcelona and Real Madrid and how it works in Spain. They want to have all the control. They want to veto chairmen that want to take over, just as they would have done with Newcastle's takeover, and I just find it greedy. I find it greedy. I find it horrible. In the long run, I just don't think it's it's a good thing for the league. I don't think it's a good thing for the EFL at all. Uh, in the short run, it's fantastic for the EFL. They're desperate for finances. There's clubs that are on the brink of going out. Clubs that have been going for over a hundred years. They they will take that money. But um, I think if you if there was no COVID issue, if there was a problem, wasn't a problem. So with fans coming into stadiums, I don't think the EFL will be so happy to take this deal. I think this is really bad for football. And I think this is only the start of the issue. It really is.
2: Yeah, and as is usually the case in these things, Sarah, it was a pretty secretive process. The other 14 Premier League clubs outside the top six found out through the media. That, to me, presents a basic issue of trust. Again, to repeat the question in the intro, you're owning a smaller club, Do you trust the bigger clubs?
1: It's an interesting one. I think if I owned a club in League 1 or League 2, I would probably be quite happy with probably 60% of what was in this proposal. If I owned a club in the Premier League outside of those top six, I think I'd be very, very concerned. I mean, it's quite interesting that a few weeks ago we had Sean Dyche saying, you know, why should... Why should the Premier League clubs help out the other clubs? And now he might be kind of thinking, now I'm the one who's, you know, on the other end of something here and 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 actually I I think we should all work together. Um so it's 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 definitely um a difficult one. But I but I think for those clubs lower down, you know, there's a lot in this proposal for them that makes sense. You know, we what what this coronavirus crisis the pandemic has done is show us that there are problems in terms of how clubs are being run you know in terms of the money that that championship clubs are spending and and so we've seen that that I think real change is needed and and this proposal does does address some of that in terms of the structure and and payments etc and and spreading the payments more equally but it's the obviously you know the the big the big elephant in the room is is the cost that that will come with and the strings attached to it. And and do we want to take those risks? Because handing the power to so few clubs, you know, it it, it just begs the question of where does that lead and where does it end? And, you know, it, it's quite a scary prospect, I think. And it's one that I, I just can't see how they get that passed through any channel. You know, presumably the other Premier League clubs would have to vote for it, which... I can't see them doing. The FA would have to allow all those changes in terms of promotion and relegation. So they, I think there's a very long way to go. But And obviously the, the headline is is the power grab. But there's a lot more in there that I, I don't think should be dismissed so easily.
2: Yeah, I suppose what we need to do, Addie, is, is you know, peel back the layers of the onion on this one. Let's look at the motivation of the two ringleaders, Liverpool, Manchester United. United owned by the Glazers, who's, you know, voracious capitalists. They've taken an awful lot of money out of Manchester United and perhaps not given a great deal back. What I'm interested in also is the Liverpool scenario. Fenway Sports, founded in Delaware, the corporate tax haven, they're in the process of a merger with a so-called special purpose acquisition company, which is called Red Bull, That's involved in the Oakland Athletics executive, Billy Bean. Richard Scudamore has been involved in that as well. Looks like that would make Fenway about an $8 billion company. Those figures tell you the whole story. This is just about money, isn't it? Yeah, it is
3: just about money. But what it is more importantly, it's about that money not stopping, that money continually coming in. In order to do that, you have to be one of the biggest clubs in the world. Liverpool have now got to that seat once again, and and they want to stay there. Their, their, Their increase in profits in the last, or their increase in revenue in the last sort of four or five years has been astronomical compared to where they were. And I feel Liverpool, as a club, want to be in that position for a long time. And I think this is almost the first start of how do we stay here? How do we not lose that position? How do we keep this 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 money coming in. I think this is the start of it. it. It is dangerous. I think it it takes away what we've all grown up to love about football, the competition element. We've always discussed that the competition element's going anyway. There are almost four leagues within the Premier League anyway, but this almost, what Liverpool and Manchester United are doing, almost is trying to make sure that they are above anyone else in this four leagues and they stay there. The revenue just keeps on coming in. I'm, I'm slightly shocked that Obviously, look, Liverpool and Manchester United are the the first teams to to kick this off, and it looks like there'll be four others joining them. I'm shocked that it won't... I'm shocked that only six have um, sort of agreed to this. I feel like more clubs are going to jump in on this because I think more clubs want that Premier League revenue. More clubs want to show or want to stay in the Premier League. And um, I think more clubs will agree with it. I I do see that happening. I know Sarah says it probably won't get the go-ahead with others. I, I think it might do.
2: Well, you know, I, I think this possibly still will be the prelude to a super league and you know big changes coming in probably 2024-25 uh, some of the conspiracy theorists are saying well Manchester United and Liverpool belong to the European Clubs Association who are pushing for a complete rebore of international football. You know, that's the big picture stuff. What about the minutiae of it, Sarah? But as it affects the governance of the game, you mentioned the FA earlier on. Now, Greg Clark of the FA was apparently involved in some of these discussions. Yet under this plan, the FA is just another beggar in a long line of people or individuals or clubs who are beholden to the Premier League. And aren't we basically saying that the FA are surrendering everything that they should hold dear?
1: Well, it it is interesting that the FA haven't actually formally commented yet, but I think they were mentioned in the Premier League statement that they released yesterday as being against some of the proposals. And they do have the ability to veto changes to regulation, don't they, in terms of promotion or or relegation. But but yeah, the fact that that Greg Clark has been involved in discussions so far is interesting and and it's... I mean, I suppose it's the the age old power struggle between the Premier League and the FA, and and we know that the power really rests with with those big clubs in the Premier League. So whether the FA have the have the power or the will to to really stand up to this, I, I'm not sure. You know, I, I think the FA have their own problems, and and mentioned in this proposal is 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 quite a big chunk of money going to the FA, I think as well. So. You know, there's there's that side of things that might be something for them to to consider as well when they when they talk about what the plan is and, and whether they're going to stand up to this or not. But you know, I do think they'll be uncomfortable with the the con- concentration of power and what that means for the for the future of the league, for sure.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, where, in a similar vein, does this leave Rick Perry, Addy? You know, the founding chief exec of the of the premier league obviously you know closely involved with liverpool during his career yet and to, his, you know, to to be fair to him he's saying look you know this will set football up for the next 25 years however has he been basically playing both ends against the middle here in terms of you know is it or is he just looking after the efl in the in the way the best way he thinks possible what about his position has he been compromised
3: Slightly, but he's been left in a difficult position as well. I was listening or reading, sorry, a statement that the EFL made and it says, look, we've we've been waiting for assistance, whether it be from the government uh, to to help us out of our current situation, our current predicament. We've not had any assistance. Here is an offer which is saying here's 250 million to make sure that none of our clubs go out of bust, none of our clubs are on the brink. And I think he's been left in, in a difficult position. We know his history of Liverpool Football Club as well. That doesn't help, uh, the fact that he's already had that history. But what I, I don't know what else he can do. There are clubs that are knocking his door down saying, look, we need money or we're going to be on the brink. Here comes an offer here with $250 million immediately to the EFL. But not only that, 25% of all revenues to the EFL as well. So um, it, it's a difficult situation for him. Unless there are any other offers on the table so that these clubs don't go out of brink, then I, I don't know what he can do apart from... Sort of almost blue tick this. I think Sarah said it. There are some good points to this this bigger picture. It's not all negative. It's not all bad. And this, especially the twenty five percent every year of all revenues, I think that's a good offer. And I think um, I think Rick Perry is in a situation where you have to take that offer.
2: Yeah, let's look at those positive elements if we can, Sarah. You know what stood out for me, and it's something that Rick Perry has spoken about uh, in the recent past, is the abolition of parachute payments which I think will probably cause a few of the lower Premier League clubs and you know the aspiring championship clubs a few sleepless nights. There's also talk about you know, increase in contributions to good causes, 5% of Premier League revenues to good causes and grassroots football. So there are good things, aren't there?
1: Yes, there are. I mean, the, the parachute payments has such an impact on the championship and that is why we've seen you know, such vast spending from the clubs in the championship to try and close that gap between, I think it's six clubs at the moment in the championship that are receiving parachute payments. And the difference in terms of what that means between those six clubs and the rest of the championship is is huge financially. It's just remarkable. So getting rid of that disparity is definitely a good thing, I think, and just levelling that that playing field and, and not encouraging that overspending from the, the other championship clubs that is is leaving so many of them, you know, on the brink, especially in a situation like this. So we definitely have to have to think about that in terms of, you know, the money going into a non-league game as well. You know, that that is is game changing for them. And, you know, we 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 want we want to keep the pyramid, you know, essentially as, as we've known it. You know, people love it. We, this is why we love the game, all these different levels. And and this money going spreading throughout is is what we've kind of wanted to see for a long time, rather than the money being concentrated in in so few clubs and and the Premier League having that you know power over over everybody else and being so separate. It feels like it's finally closing that gap a little bit between the Premier League and the Football League, the rest of the EFL. That gap that has just been kind of growing bigger and bigger and bigger and, and threatening to break away the Premier League for a long time. So yeah, there are those good things. There's also, I mean, there wasn't. There was a little mention of the women's game. I think in terms of that, it should be run by a separate body.
2: Yes, it was. Yeah, mm.
1: which is interesting. I mean, that was kind of it. So it's a bit short on on detail. <laughs> but um, as as most things, you know, when it comes to running women's football, can be. But you know, there have been talks about private private equity firms wanting to come in and and look at the women's game. So that could be interesting. And some people, I think, would agree that. They don't want it to be run by the Premier League. I've kind of torn on that. I think there there would be some good things about being part of the Premier League. So, yeah, there there are there are good things and, and definitely elements in this that people have wanted to see for a long time.
2: Yeah, but we're in now the stage, aren't we? You know, I, I would imagine over the next few days a, a plan B of sorts would probably emerge. So I suppose it will boil down to the cost of that support, won't it, Addy? The thing that, that struck me was the idea that Premier League clubs can loan 15 players for any club. Surely that's just a B team by the back door, isn't it?
3: Yeah, I, that I think, look, the, again, a lot of bad on there, and that was one of the things that stood out as being really bad for me. I just don't like that idea at all. I feel like I, I look at a club like Chelsea, for example, who who have hundreds of players, it seems like, loaned out every single season. And I don't understand the idea of them being allowed to have four or five of those players in one team in the Premier League. It just makes absolutely no sense to me. So yeah, again, fingers crossed that that doesn't happen. I think the loan system does need to be looked at though. I think, I, I, I assumed that when the under 23s came in, that would be the end of the loan system, but not, I think we're seeing it now with, again, teams like Chelsea and Liverpool, continually loaning out players. I think we need to look at that system in and out because it doesn't work. And we are closer to that B team, right? The B team that could appear in League One and League Two. And that that can't happen. But this is already very much like it happening already. So yeah, fingers crossed that doesn't happen. And another thing that I thought was very good was the cap of away tickets at £20. That's been a big problem for fans. Prices are just ridiculous and astronomical. And I think fans will be happy about that the abolition of the League Cup and the Community Shield. I think that's harsher than the League Cup, but I think the Community Shield has almost become a pre-season game for some of these clubs now, and I feel like it holds little weight. And the League Cup seems to be an under-23 league right now as well. So there are some good to this. So I look forward to seeing a new proposal sometime next week with an update to what this already is.
2: Yeah, the government have come out very strongly against it, but I suppose that does beg the question, Sarah, what have they done for football lately? (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, uh well they've used it they've used it quite a lot in various different ways over the last sort of six months haven't they trying to use it in to their credit and you know try to use it to raise the spirits of the nation when it's in their interest try to put the pressure on players to 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 give up their wages and 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 put that focus on players which is perhaps slightly unfair some might think when a lot of players do a lot of of good for charity as it is
2: Marcus Rashford, by the way, I thought the the gestures that he's been making well but also the you know the the concrete good that he's doing is amazing yeah yeah,
1: I mean you know it's not just empty kind of words and phrases like you know it's actually kind of you know applying pressure in the right places and making things happen, which is probably more than we can say for the government, especially when it comes to thinking about the future of of you know, the Football League. So for, I guess from Rick Parry's point of view, you know, he's been talking about this this huge hole in the finances for months and months. And he's not seen, you know, any kind of real suggestions or plan for for how we can assure the future of, of these clubs. So yes, while he was already in talks about these other plans and, you know, we we'll we're told that this is version 18 of the proposals. So it's something that's been going on for a long time. You can kind of understand why he's involved in this because he sees it as as the only you know real tangible option to to to, to save some of these clubs.
2: Yeah, you know, we, my worry, I suppose, is that while we're talking about this, or whether when the powers that be keep talking about it, it just delays any bailout, which is becoming more urgent by the day. The return of fans, Addy, is key to this as well. Now, Oliver Dowden, Culture Secretary, when to the Royal Ballet at the weekend, there were four hundred people inside a, an indoor two thousand two hundred capacity venue, the Albert Hall. Now, I can't square that, and good luck to you know, the people at the, at the Royal Ballet, and you know they have the right to to enjoy you know a, a, a perfectly you know, reasonable evening there, but when you set that against the a reiteration this morning by Mr. Dowden that it's not the time yet for fans to come back, that doesn't square for me. What about you?
3: No, it doesn't make sense at all. I speak to Tony Intenzo, who covers a lot of non-league football, and he talks about these clubs, again, that have been going 100 years, just shutting up the shop, shutting up doors. They can't afford it anymore. And it isn't just... I think a lot of people need to understand it's not just a case of fans standing up for football. A lot of these clubs use their, their buildings for... For, for They rent it out for for engagements, for for other things as well. So there's a lot of money that's being lost. We've done pilots. I mean, Chelsea played Brighton pre-season game just to make sure that was going to work out fine. And it did. There were MPs there. Brighton's chief exec spoke and said there were MPs. There, there were doctors there. Just to make sure everything went fine, it did. What's the problem? This isn't just a case of clubs being on the brink here. This is a case of people's mental health, people people's welfare. It's disgraceful that... Boris Johnson and the government can say, go to your local cinema and support that. And people go to the local ballet, again, indoor indoor things here, when there's been um, testing events that have happened, not just in football, but in rugby and cricket that have gone through successfully. And that's still not enough. Uh, I don't think, I think there's a lack of, lack of understanding about what these clubs mean to the local communities and the amount of people it affects when uh, fans don't go to grounds and the amount of jobs that have been lost here. This is more than just fans standing up for football. This is this is this is a community that's struggling. And again, we're talking about clubs that have been going successfully. And maybe, you know, the clubs need to look at themselves as well, but clubs that have been going successfully for over a hundred years, and clubs now that are on the brink. And I feel like there's a massive disconnect with these clubs and the government. And it's clear now with them going to the Royal Albert Hall and watching a bit of ballet. I think it's disgraceful and it's horrible because again, these are people that have done test events, the test events have been fine and they've been ticked off as okay, and that's still not enough. makes no sense.
2: Because, mm, you know, you you go into other sports, don't you, Sarah, you know, into boxing in particular, which is essentially being staged in a bit of a vacuum at the moment. Can you give us some idea of how weird that is to cover those type of events?
1: I mean, I, I went, I've went. i been to to Matchroom's garden, <laughs> garden event when they held boxing in Eddie Hearn's. Well, it was the back garden of the matchroom HQ. Essentially, it is it is bizarre. I mean, I I spoke. I did a piece with Mike Costello. Sorry, his name <laughs> his name is gaming. The um the the boxing commentator for Five Live, who uh, commentated on a fight between um, Dillian White and Povetkin, when Dillian White was quite dramatically knocked out, and he said, you know, the moment of the knockout punch. You had kind of, obviously, there's a moment of shock. And then if you were in an arena with loads of fans, there would be, you know, a sudden kind of uproar of noise and there was just nothing. And as a commentator, he found that quite difficult because, you know, you, you tend to judge what you're saying on what the crowd are doing. And he didn't know how long to keep speaking for. And it, it's all quite, quite strange. And, you know, you're when you're watching on TV, I think you're kind of distracted by people walking around in the background and it just lacks it lacks something as we know. So it's it's really odd. And um and the future boxing has a series of really pretty big pretty big fights coming before Christmas. And promoters have just had to accept now that those bouts are probably going to be either without fans or with very very few. I think Eddie Hearn is really pushing to try and get some fans into Wembley Arena in December for an Anthony Joshua fight. So and and I think that will help, even if it's just a thousand. I think it's better than nothing. Yeah, it's definitely taking something away from a sport that is you know is gladiatorial and it needs it needs that atmosphere really.
2: Yeah, well, yeah, you know, I think international footballs really missed crowds. Yesterday, watching the the England game against Belgium, it was just dead for me, and it had this. It was almost you know, it, it felt like a friendly. What about international football, Addy? You know, we've talked about changing times and it's pretty obvious that we we are in uh, at a moment of real change within the game. What future do you think does international football have?
3: Well, right now, I think it should almost be put on pause. We are quite ignorant with the fact that we are letting these players, and I'm speaking from an England perspective here, letting these players go all over the world during this global pandemic and come back and try and re-self-isolate. I just find it all bizarre. I mean, I'm a massive NBA fan and, you know, in order to continue the NBA championships, everyone's had to be in a bubble. They've almost locked them all away in almost like an area and said, OK, look, no one can leave. We need to continue the NBA championships here and that's it. I mean, it would be the, the idea of trying to self-isolate then letting people go all over the world to Africa and to Brazil and to other countries just, just absolutely makes no sense for me. We have a problem here where players are going away. I mean, Nabi Keita is a good example for Liverpool. He's gone away. He's now contracted the COVID virus. And it just makes no sense. It's almost like we're playing Russian roulette here. I think if you want to continue to play football in this country, do it, fine. But that's it. I think international football has to be put on hold, especially friendlies. I mean, what are we doing? I mean, I, I, mean, I, I understand the Euro 2021 playoffs just, but the Nations League and, and, and friendlies, I just, I just find it bizarre. And I feel like If we do want the Premier League to continue, and I think Premier League and Championship and League One, League Two to continue, I think we have to start looking at international friendlies being put on hold. Again, I think the idea of letting people go all over the world where maybe... test I mean, look at Shakiri is a good example of someone that was tested by uh, the Swiss FA. He was deemed positive, and then a couple of days later, it was negative. I don't know if we can trust the testing systems all over the world right now. So I think we just need to make sure that we're OK here. The players are in a bubble here. And the idea of letting them go all over the world is, is bizarre for me.
2: Yeah, it does seem, doesn't it, Sarah, that football's almost sleepwalking into another problem. You know, you only have to look at that abandonment at half time with the under-19 international between England and Scotland just for the weekend. Can we just concentrate on the impact, actually, of this on Liverpool? You know, they're the champions, but they're almost they're, they're the guinea pigs as well because of covid Positive tests for for Mane and Thiago, as well as as Naby Keita, as as Addy said. Where does all this leave Liverpool? Because they've got a big Merseyside derby at the weekend.
1: Yeah, I mean, considering what happened before the international break, it's 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 huge for Liverpool. And you almost wonder, like, with all these players coming back and having to self isolate and not being able to play, like, when does when does it get to the point where we say this is starting to affect the integrity of the competition? How many? How many first team players have to be out for us to say, you know, can these Premier League should these Premier League games be going ahead? Obviously there's huge problems with that because the schedule is is packed as it is. There just isn't that wiggle room to do that. But if a club like Liverpool is is becomes affected to that to that extent, they will start they will start making those noises and say, look, why should we play a Merseyside Derby when we're missing so many members of our, our first team squad? So it's, I mean, it's a, it's obviously it's a huge game at the weekend at Goodison. Uh, you know, what happened, <laughs> what happened in their last game is is just against Villa is just very difficult. I think for anybody to to get their head around. And at the moment, it can sort of be, you know, dismissed as a, a blip or a an anomaly. But um, if Liverpool go into that squad against the Neverton, going into that game against an Everton team that is is really flying and and got so much momentum. You know, it's top of the table. In Dominic Calvert-Lewin, they've got a player who is, is perhaps the most informed striker in the league, you know, and, and if they lose another one or or don't get a positive result, it, it could really start to impact them confidence-wise going into Champions League games.
2: Yeah, I, I do think, you know, we're in an if-but-maybe situation at the moment, and I suppose the other one of the other things that people at club level will tell you, or have told me anyway, is that, you know, what are we meant to do? Because of the way this season is being structured, our players, our international players, will get them maybe sometime on Thursday. We'll have a some sort of, you know, walkthrough of the game plan on Friday, then we're playing Premier League games on the Saturday or the Sunday. It's no wonder that some people in the club game are becoming increasingly militant against against the international game.
3: Yeah, I mean we we all saw the semi-spat between Jose Mourinho and Gary Southgate, as you like to have called him. Um,
2: it, <laughs> Showbiz isn't dead,
3: is it? It's not <laughs> at all. Not when you have Mourinho around anyway. There's going to be anger again, especially with England. We're talking free games in a space of sort of eight or nine days, which is just ridiculous, to be fair. It's already a condensed season. Players are playing a lot longer than they should. We are starting to see injuries once again creep up. And I guess the scary thing about international football is that Initially, uh, managers were scared to let their players go through injury. Now it's a case of they're scared to let them go because of the COVID. So it's almost like there's a couple of things you're having to look out for now as well. I don't know. There's going to be a club versus country war going again. I I wouldn't be shocked if players are are, are faking injury, if players are are refusing to turn up to their international games just because you simply can't play these many games in such a short space of time. Uh, Sometimes I do feel like we look at these players like robots. They're not that. They are humans. Uh, They might look as fit as they've ever been, and they do look in unbelievable shape nowadays, but you just simply can't play four games in 10 days without risking injury. It's just not possible. So there is a danger that we as fans aren't getting what we want. And what I mean by that is we aren't getting the players on the pitch that we want to see just because they can't play. And then that just takes away what is supposed to be the best versus the best. It's an interesting situation that's going to happen.
2: Yeah, There are so many injury issues beginning to bubble under, aren't there, Sarah? Let's look at Chelsea, for instance. Understandably, they can't be happy at the thigh injury that Edouard Mendy sustained in training with Senegal. Presumably that means a last, last chance for Kepper against Southampton on Saturday. But again, it's things like that which will increase the antipathy, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and it feels like such a shame because I think... When Southgate, in Southgate's first few years in the job, he did himself and Steve Holland, I know, put a lot of work into sort of working on those relationships with the clubs and they spent a lot of time on that and it felt like they were getting it to a, a good position. But this situation is obviously, is so difficult for everybody and you can kind of see from the FA and from Southgate's point of view that there are Euros next summer and they, they you know, they have certain things that they want to prepare for that, you know, if, if those Euros are going to go ahead, which at the moment we haven't heard any diff- different, but seem <laughs> seem seem quite, you know, more unlikely by the day, I suppose. So you can kind of understand from their point of view. But but then you get situations like the Harry Kane one yesterday where, you know, he reportedly suffered a, a muscle injury in training on the Saturday. And then, you know, he's brought on at a point in the game where England are ahead. And what I... I don't believe that Southgate would have risked him if there was any serious problem I can understand that you know Jose Mourinho is probably sitting at home watching that jumping around his living room or, or throwing things um, because <laughs> why why you know why would he want Harry Kane to be risked like that if if there's any slight hint of a problem it seems really strange so yeah those those relationships are you know it, probably as tense as as they've ever been because like like you said there's you know, it's not only injury, but but the problems of COVID as well to think about, and it just seems like the risks maybe outweigh any of the positives at the moment.
2: Mm, what about the, the positive benefits of it in terms of of confidence? I'm sure you know. You, you mentioned Calvert. We mentioned Calvert Lewin earlier on. You know, Grealish will go back to to Villa, bouncing because he does seem on the verge of fulfilling himself at international level. Is you know, let's look at the bright side if we could for a second, and there are. Some positive things happening with England, aren't there, Addy? Yeah,
3: there's 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 lots to be fair. I mean, it's obviously you just mentioned uh Calvert Lewin and Jack Greedish there, but there's players like Calvin Phillips, who I think really emerged as as someone that could do a fantastic defensive holding midfield role for England. Connor Cody, who I've I've long thought was a fantastic player, especially now England look like they they water out this back free. Everyone's like, oh, he can only play in a back free. Well, there is a back free situation now of England, so he's another one. Akaya Saka. Oh, I think it's a fantastic left-sided player, and I think it's a it's almost a position England are struggling at. Really, we saw Trippier, a right-sided player, play on the left in that England Belgium game. So th- there are loads of positives. Players will go back to their clubs bouncing, but I almost again, if I'm a club manager, it's just a, we had, we had a friendly, a Nations League game, and it's like I don't want to see my players play in those games. Yeah, if it's a Euro twenty twenty one playoff game or, or something along those lines, fine, fantastic. But do I want to see my player wrist against Wells in a friendly just a few days after playing a club game? Not really. But, I mean, again, the positives are for those players like Kelvin Phillips and Saka and Connor Cody. I think it's fantastic for them. But for anyone else that's got 50 or 60 caps, like I don't see the reason why Jordan Henderson's playing. There's some players that don't need to play. I think England already know what these players offer. It's time to give some of the other players a chance. And I think we, we, we saw a bit of that against Wells.
2: Yeah, I suppose the other thing that drives managers mad, Sarah, is players talking on international duty. They go back to their <laughs> countries. You know, they've got familiar journalists from when they were growing up, so they they're a little bit more open. And surprise, surprise, they, they don't understand the international nature and use. In that case, Paul Pogba, you know, he was waxing lyrical about dreaming of playing for Real Madrid when he was away with France, or he's still there, obviously. Isn't it about time? He started performing at Man United instead of dreaming,
1: yeah, it is interesting, like sometimes you wonder if they they forget that things can be translated into English and shared around the world right <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. within a matter of seconds these days it's um it's quite bizarre, but yeah i mean you you would also think you know if he if he is that um unsettled and and is that keen to to look for a way out, the best way to go about it is to to focus on you know. Performing performing on the pitch for for his club rather than just say, "Well, I'd really like to play here, or you know I think that's a great club and it's you know Manchester United are obviously in a difficult period, you know the defeat to Spurs defensively they looked you know shambolic and and such public comments are are bound to have an impact on that dressing room at a time when it really doesn't need doesn't need that you know from a such a big player you know how are his teammates going to look at him? You know, can he still wield that influence if he's basically said, you know, actually, lads, I don't really want to be here. I'd rather be somewhere else. It just brings, <laughs> you know, it's going to bring the mood down even more, you would think. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, Bruno Fernandes has brought so much, so much to that team. And it would just, it would be, it would be great to see them them playing well together. And I think he should be focusing on on that rather than, you know, where he'd like to go next. <laughs>
2: Mm, he he does seem Fernandez Bruno Fernandez does seem to be emerging as a potential uh, leader of that dressing room. and also the one thing where you look, you know, beyond the headline, if you like, is when you see reports, and there was one on uh, Sarah's platform, The Athletic, I think, by Adam Crafton, quoting off the record some of the Manchester United players, which is always a bad sign, irrespective of the club, where you've got players talking anonymously about their manager. And, you know, some apparently are questioning whether Oli Gunnar Solskjaer is a top, top coach, in quotes. Now, you know, I I suspect, Addy, that you're not his greatest fan, but how long do you think the leash on him should be?
3: I think he's got some... He's got something in the background to help him in, in the sense that, you know, I think it was a good end to, well, a, kind of a good end to last season. I think they finished third, which shocked a few, two semifinals as well. So he's got some credit in the bank. I don't know how long that credit's going to last when there are managers that are clearly better than him, that don't have jobs right now. You think of the likes of Allegri and Pochettino as good examples uh, of managers that are far better, far more experienced and, and have done stuff in the clubs they've been at. Maybe not Pochettino in terms of winning stuff, but in terms of what he done with that Tottenham and how he kind of just took them from a team that were floating around sort of seventh wave to a team that got to the Champions League final when I thought we're unlucky against Liverpool. I I just don't know if he's good enough to take United where they want to, regardless of who they get in. So even if they did bring in a Jaden Sancho or, or a Haaland they tried to bring in in January, is he the man really to coach them to the to their best abilities? I, I'm not sure, but I still think again credit in the bank. I think um I think he's done quite well to settle things down at United. I think it was turmoil when he came and I think we all seem to forget how toxic it was after Mourinho left there in terms of the way they were playing. I thought I think he's done well to to bring Greenwood into the fold. I think Fernandes is a fantastic sign-in. I thought the sign-ins were going the way in which they wanted to go. The likes of Bissaka and Maguire Young, the hungry players that wanted to prove something. They might have stepped a bit backwards with the Cavani sign-up. But I still think he's a great player who's going to score goals for them. So I think there's credit in the bank, but I think in the long run, I just don't think he's good enough for United. And, I, and I, I'll be surprised if anyone disagrees with that statement. Again, Allegri's out there, Pochettino's out there. Get them while you can, United.
2: Yeah, you know, Spurs are obviously going to be bouncing back to Premier League action. I'm really looking forward to seeing Gareth Bale, especially alongside Kane and, and Son, which is you know a game-changing front three. What are your expectations of, of Gareth Bale, Sarah?
1: Yes, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because we haven't, because we haven't really seen him much of late. You know, he didn't, he wasn't playing much at Real Madrid. It's it's quite difficult to know what what to expect. But I, to be honest, I'm 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 expecting him to have a big impact on that Tottenham team. I think the qualities that he's got, you know, will will bring a lot. You know, it, you don't become a bad player just from sitting on the bench. Obviously, he needs to get up to speed, and that's what they'll have been working on since he arrived back at the club. And it will be interesting because obviously we've seen how Kane can can operate as provider as well as scorer of late, you know, him and Son have been working so well together. So I guess it could go either way. And when you add another another one into that mix, it could, it could upset that, you know, what we've seen working so well, or it could make it even better. I think with his quality in terms of delivery, etc., and positioning, I think he will improve it. It might just, I guess, take a bit of time for those three to figure out how exactly they're going to combine. But I I think Harry Kane will will really enjoy it, and I'm sure that Son will as well.
2: Yeah, we started talking about money in football, tangentially at least. We're in the last few days of the transfer window. It seems a bit weird to be talking about vast sums of money again for players in the current climate, but... Ali, do you expect any significant transfers from EFL clubs to the Premier League in the next few days? Obviously, the uh, the window closes on uh, Monday.
3: Yeah, I do. Uh, it looks like we're seeing uh, Saiben Rama go to West Ham, which is, uh, I think, a fantastic signing for West Ham. I think he's a fantastic player. Reminds me a lot of uh, Mahrez in his ability just to almost do something from nothing. So I think it's a good signing. I think Josh King could be one that leaves Bournemouth, although. Josh King's ceiling. He thinks he should probably be paying for Real Madrid, so that could be an issue for him. But hopefully he gets a move. And then, and then I expect a lot of Premier League clubs like Burnley to do business as well. I think, Well, they haven't, um, done I any,
2: they haven't done any business. They've done nothing with one player. whatsoever. Yeah. I think yeah. they've
3: spent a million pounds. And I think Sean Dyche is going to need to do some magic, as he always seems to do with Burnley every single season, which probably means him obviously making some deals happen in the Championship. So I do think uh, there'll be some ones. I think Ismail Issa is an interesting one. I do wonder who can afford him right now. I think his price seems to be going up by the day. But I still think there are some big deals to be had. Uh, I expect Josh King and Ismaili Saar to be to be on the way out of their clubs. And maybe even Troy Deeney, who's gone quiet. I think West Brom, we're looking at him, and I think that could be a fantastic sign for West Brom. So I, I think plenty of business to be done before the window shuts on Friday, the
2: 16th of October. Yeah, there are some free agents out there as well, aren't there, Sarah? Uh, what about Jack Wilshere? Now, I think West Ham paid him £3.3 million to terminate his contract, which is decent work if you can get it, I suppose. When you look at Jack Wilshere, I do so with a sense of sadness that he could have been so, so good. Where, where do you think he might end up?
1: Yeah, I find it incredibly sad, you know, having watched him as an Arsenal fan, as a kid coming through the academy and, and speaking to people who wax lyrical about the amount of talent that that he had as a young player and you just wonder how 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 has it come to this position i know there were rumors earlier in earlier this year about going to the us to mls that wouldn't surprise me you know i i think he would do a, a great job for a championship club I, I think it depends you know it depends where he wants to go he's got he's got a, a young family I, can't, I think he's on four or five kids now. Um, I think he's not long had another one. So, you know, do they do they all want to uproot and move to the States? You know, perhaps they do, but possibly not at a time like this when the US is going through a hell of a lot. Um, so, so yeah, it wouldn't surprise me to to see him end up at a championship club for sure. And, you know, he says he's been fit for the last eight months. So if a club is worried about, you know, his consistency, then, then he obviously thinks that he's in a in a good place to to play consistency, and that he wasn't just he just was not given the opportunity to do that at West Ham. But you know, when any club looks at his his record and how many games he plays each season, it's it's, it's possibly quite a difficult sell. Um, but you know, I think if a club takes him on a pay as you play type of basis, then then there's really nothing to lose for them.
2: Yeah. I want to try and sort of begin to bring things together, Adi, but I didn't want to leave today without talking about football's Black Coalition. It's the new body set up by players, coaches, and administrators. I think it's probably overdue and, and potentially a powerful force for good. What do you think about it?
3: Yeah, I echo your words there. I think it is overdue, but that's the first one. Um, look, there are no Black decision makers. At the top of the game, uh, when you look at it, whether that be the Premier League, the EFL or the FA, there's hardly any black managers as well. When you think of how many black players play in the in the football leagues, I think they need a voice. I think they need a voice. I think uh, this collective is important. I think they need to discuss issues that affect them. They are still and have been the victims of racist abuse. And I think they feel like they need to come together to decide how they deal with these sort of situations. So it is important that there has always been, if you like in behind the scenes or or in, in the back, a sort of a collective of black footballers that have always kept close together. I know Troy Dino and Miko Antonio were always very close and discussed the matters off the pitch. But I think now it's important that it comes out into the open and they set up their own voice. I still want to know a bit more in terms of how decisions are made. Did, are they in dialogue with the FA and, or the Premier League or is it just amongst themselves? But... I think for now it's important that this is this has happened. I think I saw a poll. I think it was by ESPN talking about the abuse that Marcus Rashford has received in the last month or so. So it still happens. We saw the issues with Wilfred Zaha recently as well. So I think this is important, and I think black people, especially black footballers in the game, sorry, need to need to know there's somewhere they can go where their voices are going to be heard. And I think this is this is why it's been set up. And I think um, long overdue, but very happy it's happened.
2: Yeah, I suppose you know we talked earlier on, didn't we, Sarah, about Marcus Rashford? There is a sense that players, you know, you look at you know, people like Jordan Henderson, Mark Noble at West Ham, they are also using their platforms for positive good. We shouldn't underestimate the power of that, should we?
1: No, I love the fact that that players now feel they have a voice. You know, it sounds ridiculous, but you know, it, it used to be that the only way they could get their views and opinions out there was was through a journalist which was probably great for us but possibly not not so good for them because they didn't feel they were controlling the narrative so i i think it's great that they they now have these platforms where they can get their messages directly across in the way that they want without any scope for for them the message being lost or or diluted and we've seen you know we've seen so many players use use it for positive positive outcomes we've also seen some players use it for you know, mistaken <laughs> things that they probably shouldn't do or things that they probably wish they hadn't done. So it's, it's, it's been a learning curve, I think. But I think we're definitely in a place now where where players like Marcus Rashford, Raheem Sterling, you know, are using their platforms in a, in a really positive way and, and they recognise the, the reach that, and the power that they, they have.
2: Yeah. Well, let's pull it together then. Our final thoughts for the day. Adi, you first, please. My thought is the
3: premium paid for English talent and uh, this is not me going to dig out anyone, but this league has been dominated by overseas players for a, for a number of years. I think if we were to do sort of the top 10 best players out of this league, I think probably eight or nine of them probably will be foreign. So I, I kind of question the, the the excessive amount paid for English talent over the years, and why this still exists. Uh, why is there a premium if you are an English player in the Premier League? It still, it still baffles me. I look at the Jadon Sancho deal that nearly happened. I think Jadon Sancho is a fantastic player, but sometimes I look at the sums of money, and I think 120 million plus for Jadon Sancho. It's a hell of a lot of money. Same with Declan Rice, uh, rumoured to be Chelsea looking at him. And I I look at the fee that was quoted there, and I think that's a a lot of money. And then I look at some of the players that have come in recently, Donny van der Beek, 50 million. I look at Sane going to Bayern Munich around the same amount 50 million. So my question is why is there such um, a premium on english talent when the players or the best players in this league that we've seen over the last sort of 15 20 years have pretty much all been foreign. So yeah, it's just more of a question than um a thought, really.
2: What about you Sarah?
3: Mine's probably
1: just to to touch on the the pay-per-view story that you know the element that is coming into football which you know the recent <laughs> the recent pro- um proposals have kind of overshadowed this but you know when when it was announced that uh, games were going to be made available for pretty much 15 pounds per game there was quite a big a big reaction to that i suppose the thought is that it's it's perhaps not surprising when you put so many you know high paid executives in a room that they have this kind of that there's a there's a disconnect between the people in that room and, and the wider fam, fan base. And this, I think this has just kind of reiterated that and made it so clear that they they don't really understand the fan base or, you know, how things like this are going to affect them. You know, I don't, I can understand why they're putting a charge in, but I, I just think, you know, pr- the price point is, is just too high. You know and you're gonna limit the numbers i I don't know why you don't put it at a lower price point and and guarantee that you're gonna get much bigger numbers. <laughs> you're probably bring in more money that way you know you you're you're just gonna limit your audience this way and and upset a lot of your fan base who already feel you know that that they're paying a lot for all these different platforms in the first place so yeah the the disconnect i guess between clubs and the fans just feels like it's it's growing ever bigger at a time when when people need those clubs and, and need that sense of community.
3: It's funny, yeah. sorry, Michael, it's funny because obviously me and Sarah are both big boxing fans and she, she'll probably tell you that um, th- we're used to this, seeing a, a pay-per-view model. In, it happens in boxing all the time where the big fights are, are only made on pay-per-view. We rarely see them on, on normal TV. And the price point is very interesting because in boxing, it can really be anything. I mean, over here in the UK, it's a... Sort of, £20 pounds now. In America, it could be anything between sort of 50 and $100. So you wonder uh, whether this price point is going to stay at this price point or whether it goes up and up and up. If it's a, a tier one game, if it's a May night versus Liverpool, or Manchester City versus Liverpool. So where does this price point start and stop? I mean, is it going to be the same £15 pound for, and no disrespect to these clubs, Burnley versus West Brom and Liverpool versus Manchester City? It's going to be an interesting thing going forward. This price point because it doesn't exist in boxing right now.
1: Yeah, I did ask yeah, well, myself why why it, it kind of upset me more in football than it does in in boxing. You kind of accept it. I guess part yeah. of that is because, like you said, we're used to it. But I think there's also part of it that that part of me that thinks that that clubs owe owe their fans more of a, a debt than, than boxing yeah. does. You know, fans fans are emotionally attached to their clubs in a different way to boxing fans attached to the sport, I think it's I think yeah. there's a difference. I think that's that's why. But it is an interesting it is an interesting one.
2: Yeah, that emotional attachment I think is key and it's what well, I want to dwell on a little bit at the end here. I was, to be honest, gonna talk about B teams because I felt that represented a surrender to, to greed and self interest. And I suppose the underlying issue in that is will something like that cause a lot of fans to walk away from the game without a backward glance? And I think there is a real danger of that at the moment. You know, to the ordinary fan, and you know, there's no disrespect in calling anyone an ordinary fan because I think they're all extraordinary, but, you know, football is not a supply chain. It's not a global network. It's a community. It's a common cause, and it's a game full of emotion, joy, and sadness. So when someone like... Ferran Soriano, the Manchester City chief executive, explains the need for B teams, and he talks about a development gap, players aged 17, 18 being spirited to Germany and eventually sold back to England at a massive profit. He's missing his own point. Didn't City buy Jadon Sancho for £500,000 from Watford and sell him on to Bortman for £9 million? If there is a problem with that development gap, play them in the first team. talent's there it's just not being used and people who go to watch matches and let's hope that happens soon want to watch the young players who are produced by their club and the word there is really important it means something so in the meantime thanks to sarah and addy and to you for joining us here on the football writers podcast